This is On Mass. I'm your host, Liz Medina. We are continuing to bring you some bonus episodes while working on season two. If this is your first time listening to On Mass, welcome. We're glad you're here. You can either keep on listening to enjoy this bonus episode, or scroll down to start from the beginning to hear all of season one. We have created this special two-part bonus episode to honor the story of John Henry, an African-American folk hero to whom dozens of folk songs have been dedicated. In part one, we will hear a live performance of John Henry by Eric George, a Vermont-based songwriter, sound engineer, and performer of original music and poetry. Eric also shares his relationship to the song and the repertoire of folk music more generally. We also discuss the role of music and culture in shaping personal narrative, social consciousness, and social movements. Last, we hear Eric perform an original song off his album, Songs of Resistance. In part two, friend of the pod and local journalist Dylan Kelly and I dive deep into the hard history embodied in the story of John Henry. We also discuss the revolutionary history and spirit so clearly embodied in the version we feature as our theme song in season one. We thought the story of John Henry and Eric George's performance were so important and incredible that we are making them available to all of our listeners. However, we will continue producing exclusive content for our Patreon members to show our thanks for being a member of our en masse community. If you haven't become a member yet, please consider doing so. Go to patreon.com slash en masse. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash e-n-m-a-s-s-e. Thanks so much for your support. Now enjoy part two of the story of John Henry. You were mentioning, Liz, the, the business of of death because we have so many people who are working themselves to death on these rail lines, but we also have these memorials that are being carved out of this granite. And now with the age of the pandemic, we still see these markers of death and these markers of these lives that have been lived literally like gathering dust in this rail yard because most of the granite that's quarried here in Barrie ends up going to, some of it goes to big giant statues and edifices and things along those lines, but most of them go to gravestones and memorials and markers and headstones for the people who lived here and the people who died here. And we can see, you know, the evidence of that just in this big car here, just sitting rusting, just behind... I guess really within a stone's throw of downtown Barrie and we see these these remnants of this industrial system just oxidizing in the sun here. Yeah, what is this? This is casted out something, something, something. Can't quite make it out. But yeah, we still see just the detritus of industrialization just gathering gathering up in big piles here. Yeah, a rusty train car filled with granite that was 
laboriously extracted from the earth and yeah, it's just left behind. All right, so we are standing in along the railroad tracks of the former granite transportation system that would bring granite down from the quarries, the Rock of Ages quarries above Barrie, down to the sheds where they would be processed and worked upon and and eventually transformed into headstones or some other material. Oh, by the way, my name is Dylan Kelly, and I am here with the wonderful host of the On Mass podcast. Liz Medina. And we're talking about John Henry today. Yes, we are. And we came out here to Barry to the rail yard to connect with the past and the history embodied in our theme song, John Henry, and the legend that is embodied in that song. When were these tracks put in? Probably 1900s, early 1900s? Probably around then. And the granite industry in Barrie really didn't take off until the rail system was more built up here in Vermont and across the nation. Because think about it. These are multi-ton blocks of granite that were being blasted out. It's incredibly hard to move that with just a a horse pulling team or um, oftentimes they would find even more creative ways to move granite before the railroads, such as uh, pushing along ice on the river um, in the wintertime or, um, yeah, sometimes it was uh, just dragged out through (laughs) massive horse teams. But that that was that meant that the granite in Barry couldn't go very far, and it really was used mostly to build local uh, structures and buildings, the capital, um, or for embellishments for wealthier people in the town, and memorials, of course, for local people, usually of a wealthier uh, background. And the railroads meant that. Now, Barry's granite, which was highly prized for its quality, could be shipped throughout the country, and the industry just exploded. And at that time, when the industry was exploding because of the railroads um, being built, that presented uh, shed owners with a high need for massive amounts of laborers. And that's really when the waves of immigration to Barry got its start mm-hmm. yeah, and you can still see like the, the remnants of it just standing right here like i have my back to to one shed and there's literally the tracks go straight into the mouth of a giant garage door if i just take a few steps around the corner here there's another shed which is now called the metro center and this is right in the middle of downtown we're shouting distance away from main street so it wasn't like this is an industry that was some distant thing it was like a visceral part of of downtown Barrie. It was a visceral part of how people live their lives. And the tenement buildings, some of them are visible from here. And so all these workers were crammed in doing work that was either stone cutting or quarrying or laying down these tracks like John Henry might have to to get these goods and services moved around. And it makes you think like of the hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people that were involved, how many people were actually calling the shots? How many people were in control? How many people were managing and controlling the flow of wealth and capital 
between these workers and between these different buildings. Like, this is, we're really kind of looking at the skeletons of what was once here. That's right. And I think that metaphor is fitting because it speaks to the gravity and the typical ending that most workers could expect from all of the sweat and tears they put into their work. Uh, they were often not rewarded well at all and uh, were ex- expended um, to an early death. And so th- that's, this is a good point to just quickly acknowledge the fact that we're going to be talking about some heavy stuff at certain points here. And you listeners should just be aware that, you know, the history of capitalism and racial capitalism is violent and ugly. Um, and speaking of like the skeletal remains of the railroad and the ways in which it echoes the ghost of the workers in the past who faced immense injustice. The legend of John Henry has a haunting connotation as well. Um, Some say that local folks are somewhat afraid to hang out around the old Big Bend because they feel the ghost of John Henry still haunts the place. And I remember as a kid hearing about many ghost stories and hauntings and they shared a similar theme, and that is injustice. Whenever there is a great injustice or a violent death, ghosts haunt the place where it happened. And it makes sense that the ghost of John Henry would still be with us today. So let's talk about like the standard story of John Henry and how people see it today. So the typical way people understand John Henry. A lot of people have heard of it, and what they hear about is that it's a story about a black worker working for the CNO who was challenged by a steam-powered drill that was going to potentially outpace him in drilling through the mountain range uh, for the the Big Bend Tunnel. So you have a railroad worker who is saying, okay, my job is on the line if I can't outperform this machine that they've brought in. That's right. And so this worker was damned if he was going to be replaced by a machine and decided to have a contest against the machine and challenged the steam drill owner and said, I can go faster through this mountain. I can hammer and drill through this mountain faster than this steam power drill. Mm -hmm. And how did that go? Well, uh, it didn't go particularly well uh, in a certain sense, but it, uh, the, the legend says that he drilled further along than the steam power drill before the steam power drill gave out. But unfortunately, John Henry's heart gave out as well from the sheer exhaustion of trying to compete against this machine. And so it's a tragedy of man versus machine and the theme of automation that workers have uh, faced since the beginning of industrial mm-hmm. capitalism. And that same thing was playing out here in Barrie with like pneumatic tools and specialized cranes and, and blasting. Those same things were happening more or less here, just a slightly different narrative. And so we have, 
I come back to shared struggle all the time, not to be cliche <laughs> within the the radical left, but it's so much of these stories that we tell ourselves, like the, the, the workers here in Barrie likely heard the song John Henry and could feel a sense of connection, knowing that like at some point they might get automated right out of everything that they had worked to build over these these years. And and with the version of John Henry that we have, you can you can literally hear John Henry kind of looking back over a shoulder and saying, do, do you want to take a crack at this, boss man? Like, you want to do a better job? Like, go right ahead. And, you know, maybe one day I'll miss and we'll see what happens. Like, keep talking. Keep, keep talking. Keep talking. That's right. So the, the Grover Wells version... The Grover's Well version that we use as a theme song for season one, which was recorded on Parchment Farm, which is the penitentiary, the state penitentiary in Mississippi. It was a plantation and pretty much remained plantation after the Civil War. And Alan Lomax went and recorded a prison chain gang singing this version of John Henry, and the lead singer was identified by the name of Grover Wells. And in this version, John Henry threatens his captain and says, as you said, hey, um, I may miss this deal and hit you instead, essentially. If I miss this deal and this hammer get away, tomorrow will be your burying day. And then later on in this song, in this version too, he talks about potentially walking off the job. John Henry, John Henry may just walk off the tracks and never come back. He says, John Henry told his captain, going on down this track, captain, captain, I may never come back. And that is essentially John Henry saying, I may go on strike. The largest general strikes that we often don't consider a general strike is all the uh, slaves going to union lines during the Civil War, walking off the plantations and saying, fuck this. I'm going to fight for my freedom and uh, please also give me a gun so I can <laughs> uh, shoot some of these uh, evil <laughs> plantation owners, um, my, these, my master, if possible. And rightly so. And so Eric um, Loomis actually wrote about this phenomenon as a general strike in his book, um, A History of American Ten Strikes, which is very very good i highly recommend it but so this version of john henry to wrap it back around expresses a long history of working class struggle and uh, resistance among uh, black workers so the story of john henry reflects a real historical moment in the united states was john henry a real person well, <laughs> from what we know, it certainly sounds like a real person, but you've, it, you and a bunch of other people have done research to figure out that, A, he probably was, and B, oh, it's Barry Tumbleweed, um, <laughs> a piece of trash blown past us. <laughs> but you and others have done a bunch of research to indicate that he was a real person. Yeah, so we can't know for sure whether John Henry was an actual real person and the song was based on a real person's life life but there is some evidence that 
John Henry may have been an actual person. And uh, Scott Reynolds Nelson wrote an excellent book titled Steel Drive and Man, uh, John Henry, The Untold Story of an American Legend. And he finds some historical evidence to show that John Henry was, in fact, a real person, a convict laborer who worked for the CNO and maybe didn't die in a contest against a steam drill, but died from uh, the intense exploitation. He was worked to death. Um, he was worked to death. He was worked to death. And he wasn't a terribly old man. And here we, we see that he was the man that we believe may have been John Henry. He was a, an ex-slave that was hired to work on the CNO, uh, about 18 years old and was hired by the U.S. Burial Corps as well, and he may have also done other sundry jobs such as lining tracks for the U.S. military, uh, railroad lines, or loading and unload steamboats on the James River as a stevedore. So he wasn't just some random person. He was a, a worker who did a, a bunch of different things. It wasn't necessarily just confined to railroad work, from what we know. No, it wasn't. However, uh, the he did find... The state reports of the Virginia State Penitentiary, which provided a lot of convict laborers for the CNO Railroad. And Scott Reynolds Nelson found that 380 black convicts had been leased to the CNO Railroad between 1871 and 1872. About a third of them were killed. And 24 died a few weeks after they returned from work. So this was incredibly brutal work. Yeah, so it's close to 400 people shipping out, working for a couple of years, working very, very hard, and then going back to the penitentiary to continue serving out their time. Or maybe they had gotten to their release date, but 24 of them were returned to the penitentiary and died almost immediately. Yes. So that's where we're again saying like the, the mistreatment of mistreatment of workers, but also the mistreatment of incarcerated people who are kind of deposited back wherever they came from saying, okay, we're all done with them. And by that point, they've, they've already been worn out. Exactly. And you may be wondering, well, if, if it was the hard work that killed them, why were they dying necessarily after they had returned back to the penitentiary? And the hard working conditions had immensely deteriorating effects on their bodies. So, uh, according to the prison records, some of the most common ailments faced by these workers that killed them oftentimes were scurvy, dropsy, dysentery, and consumption, also known as silicosis. And you may be a little bit familiar with silicosis from listening to season one. And just like the berry granite workers who breathed in the silica dust in the sh granite sheds, the tunnels had horrible ventilation and they were breathing in rock with high silica content as well that led to them uh, either dying from silicosis or uh, related lung diseases because their lungs were so weakened. Their lungs were weakened and almost turned to to stone because there was just so much dust that was pulled into them and just shred their lungs from the inside out, more or less. What kind of treatment could they expect? Like if, if a worker was standing there on the line and... Maybe their, their gums are receding from scurvy and they're getting bloated from dropsy or they're having a hard time breathing and they're coughing up who knows what. 
all the dust in the air. Like if they went to their boss and said, I'm, I can't do this anymore. I have to lay down. I have to, I can't work. Was that an option for them in terms of their ability as workers to bring grievances to their, to their employer at the time? No, no. <laughs> Flatly. No, Flatly, pretty much. No. Um, I'm sure maybe the, there's a historian can maybe point to cases in which they may have received some treatment, but, uh, Workers have historically been treated as disposable, and these workers were particularly treated as disposable. Uh, the uh, CNO and other industrial capitalists who benefited from the incredibly cheap labor provided by convict leasing um, did not have to return the convicts alive to. Uh, escape any penalties or fees. Uh, so um, all, all, all the contracts with the penitentiaries uh, in Virginia stipulated that uh, the prisoners had to be returned in order to avoid a fee, but it didn't stipulate if they had to be returned alive or dead. So that they were considered not much different than returning a, a shovel or a pick. Exactly. You're just returning property in whatever wear and tear. It's kind of just factored into the, the initial lack of a better term, rental agreement, lease agreement. Yes. Um, they they were treated like property before the Civil War and as slaves, and when they were technically freed after the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment, they were still pretty much treated like property, especially if they ended up in the penitentiaries and the uh, prison system. And so... Convict leasing, some, not everyone may be familiar with what exactly that is and, and how that worked. Do you want to say that or do you want me to talk about it? They, they get at it a, a few different ways, but it was a, essentially a way of the way you would rent out a car or rent out a, a piece of property. You would have these workers available essentially as a disposable labor source, and they would be transported outside of the, the walls or the fields of a penitentiary or a, a farm, in the case of Parchment Farm. And they would be sent off to provide labor that was so cheap that other workers who had the free will to do so uh, couldn't possibly compete. So you're simultaneously undermining the local freed workforce who weren't incarcerated, but also you're essentially perpetuating the systems of slavery by having these people work for either nothing or almost nothing. And in return, the industrialists would be able to get a railroad laid down or get a dam built or get a bridge constructed for as little money as possible or just working in the fields doing the same work that they probably might have been doing before the Civil War. And so they get a whole lot of money for very little labor expense. And the warden of whatever incarcerated uh, incarceration institution would also get a, a nice fat little check to in exchange for the lease agreement and often would be skimming quite a bit off the top for himself personally and again it was usually a dude so this was a system that just treated these disposable workers as an a way of enriching as as much as possible the people who stood at the top of the economic pyramid and disenfranchising as much as possible anyone who was actually out here scrounging around in the dirt and the rocks trying to move these big pieces of iron and steel around that's exactly it. I appreciate that you mentioned the ways in which the convict leasing system was a tool for the capitalist class to bring down wages for all workers uh, because the convict workers were paid 
so little, and rent, at least for so little, they brought down the wages of everybody else. And so every, poor whites and um, other workers also suffered the consequences of this unjust system. And that's why the concept of collective liberation to this day is so important. Uh, an injury to one truly is an injury to all. And that system, um, did that system go away, Liz, to your knowledge? Does that system of leasing convicts out for cheap labor, does that, that's a, that's a relic of the past now, right? Well, we wish it were, right? Unfortunately, it is not. In fact, the 13th Amendment still has the exception of allowing involuntary servitude for a punishment for a crime. And so prisoners today are still used by major corporations as a source of cheap labor. Notable corporations, Coca-Cola, Frito-Lay, you name it, a lot of very recognizable brands. You go down the store, a lot of of store brands, actually, that you might see in a supermarket, often those are done under, like, the generic name brand by prison labor. That's one of the ways that they can undercut the traditional labor forces still to this day. If you buy a, a bag of tortilla chips that's two or three dollars cheaper than the name brand one, guess what? There's a good chance that might have been done through prison labor actually at a prison or by leasing those convicts out to a, a factory and then they're, they're trucked back into the prison at night. Yep. So this is a struggle we still have to face and fight against and an injustice that still lives with us and haunts us. John Henry is still swinging his hammer somewhere. That sounds corny, but I said it anyway. <laughs> so, well, actually, so we're, we're ta- we've talked about convict leasing, and so um, Scott Reynolds Nelson did go through these records. He found all these cases of prisoners dying early in life, suffering from preventable diseases, and overwork, and he did find a record for a John Henry. So an archivist at the Library of Virginia let Scott Reynolds Nelson examine the sealed records of the penitentiary. They were sealed. They were sealed. So that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Why should these records that are clearly, that are 150 years old at this point, still be sealed? Is Could it have anything to do with the fact that these injustices are continued, continuing to this day? <laughs> So the record included the following information for an inmate named John William Henry. This is a prison record, so it's by design a dehumanizing record. Collared, number 497. When received, 1866, November 16th, where sentenced Prince George... Crime, housebreak and larceny. Term, 10 years. Nativity, U.S. state or province, New Jersey. County district or city, Elizabeth City. Height, 5 feet, 1.25 inches. Age, 19. Complexion, black. Color of hair, black. Color of eyes, black. Marks or other peculiar descriptions. A small scar on the left arm above the elbow. 
a small one on the right arm above the wrist. When pensioned, discharged, or died, transferred in pencil. So he, what's written on this record that he was just transferred, which doesn't tell us a lot about how, what happened to him. Transferring could have meant shipped back, dead. So if John Henry was a real person, and this is the actual John Henry that the songs are all about, he was not this necessarily massive, heroic man, but just a, a regular guy. In fact, kind of rather short in stature. He was, he was and, just a guy trying to get by from day to day. Exactly. Just like you and me. I mean, I'm actually 5'2". Dylan's about, what are you? 5'6 on a good day. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, I mean, the, these records, just reading them, is... It makes me feel incredibly sad the way human beings are treated like property and have been treated like property. And this this record is an expression of how this person was just considered a number, 497. And um, they, any details about him are only there to identify and control him, such as the markings. In fact... If um, prisoners at the Virginia State Penitentiary, and I'm sure this is true at other places, didn't have any I- easily identifying features, particularly scars, um, sometimes the warden or guards would give them one. Like livestock. Like livestock. So John Henry was contracted out by the Virginia State Penitentiary to the CNO, and he was contracted out in 1868, charged to Captain Goodloe, an employee of C.R. Mason, who was a railroad contractor. And according to Nelson's review of the CNO engineering reports, no steam drills were used in the construction of the Big Bend Tunnel, but steam drills were pitted against men at the Lewis Tunnel, where nearly all the workers were convicts leased to railroad contractors by the Virginia State Penitentiary. That's what um, Scott Reynolds Nelson found. So how did, how did John Henry end up at the penitentiary, do you think? From the research that we have here, uh, we see that at the end of the Civil War in 1865, the, the Union Army had hired thousands of ex-slaves uh, into the U.S. Burial Corps to gather corpses, both Union and Confederate, uh, which had settled half-submerged into the swamps of Prince George County. And, and John Henry was one of those slaves who was hired to do that uh, at about 18 years old. He was in the Army Burial Corps. He was lining track for the U.S. military. He was loading and unloading steamboats along the James River. And in the meantime, white people living in Virginia were not terribly happy about the, the arrival of these uh, young men, uh, young black men. And that seems to indicate one of the possibilities for how John Henry ended up in the, in the incarceration system, the carceral system that, that existed during the, the early days of um, Reconstruction. Yeah, the local white population wanted to maintain white supremacy and irrationally felt threatened by recently freed black workers. And so they still retained all the political power in these places, Um, though it should be said uh, during Reconstruction, African-Americans made enormous 
strides and achievements in gaining uh, sovereignty and autonomy and governance. But in Virginia, there were a series of so-called laws um, referred to as black codes that really were the beginning of the uh, reaction against Reconstruction in the beginning of Jim, uh, the rise of Jim Crow. John Henry's supposed crime was a theft at Wiseman's Grocery, and a, a, a petty theft at that. Um, so he was arrested by an assistant commissioner of the Freemans Borough, Charles H. Byrd. And the Freemans Borough did provide federal protection for the um, violent reactions of the plantation class in uh, the former slave states. But the Freemans Borough was certainly filled with its share of corrupt bureaucrats. And Charles H. Byrd was certainly one of them. Oh, gosh. And so his approach to, to all of this was... Um he was accused of using his office for to make money essentially for himself and he rented federally controlled land to to free people at inflated prices and uh quote sent soldiers to help a landowner put down a minor revolt by his former slaves now sharecroppers so it's clearly not just leveraging his power and authority but leveraging his power and authority to put down people who were trying to like make a living and sort of the classic catch-all. It's like, well, they're a bunch of thieves, or today they'd be called thugs. Uh, just smearing them with a broad brush. Uh, and, of course, they're all former slaves. Um, and he claimed that they were uh, thieves, and his writing is, uh, in March, the carpenters and blacksmiths at the South Side Railroad went on strike, after which Byrd and his troops paid him a visit. So so Nelson writes this, and when Sevedores, uh oops, when Stevedore struck early in April and black farmers struck later that April, Byrd's army made workers return quietly and peacefully back to work. So I wonder what that process is like. Um, and he was essentially just controlling these militias to force these people back into work, which, surprise, surprise, sounds an awful lot like slavery. Yeah, and so the resistance and... and uh, captured in the version of John Henry that we have that was very much real and happening all the time despite the huge risks to black workers who stood up for themselves and their dignity and Byrd was essentially using his power to put down black workers who were saying hey we've had enough you can't exploit us anymore and he used his power to keep them down and immiserated so to to summarize, John Henry was likely living his life, was accused of being a thief, whether he was or he wasn't, we don't really know, and was swept up into the system. And so how he found himself working on the railroad, working maybe at the Lewis Tunnel, was that there is this system that was funneling him from the life of a freedman to back into the world of manual labor for almost nothing. And this guy, Bird who cut quite the figure in history, was responsible for creating and shuttling this system uh, or creating and ushering in an era of Jim Crow and bringing these people into work for industrial capitalism. And even if John Henry did actually take anything from Wiseman's Grocery, let's be real. Ten years? Ten years? 
And also the fact that these workers were uh, given pretty much starvation wages. Yeah, you're going to steal to survive. And, and we shouldn't even really call it stealing because the real thieves are bird and, uh, and the capitalist class who directly benefit from uh, making these workers work themselves to death. And they and this capitalist class takes all that extra work and uses it to enrich themselves while immiserating the workers. So the real thieves, y'all, are people like Bird and the capitalist class. So yeah, 10 years, 10 years was his sentence. And if you didn't want to work, oh, sorry, if you didn't feel like working uh, and maybe you just wanted to be self-employed, uh, there was a vagrancy law that even made that illegal. Like it was actually illegal, it was a crime for black men and women to be without employers. Yeah, exactly. So I'm talking about who are the real criminals, who are the real thieves. Crime is defined by those in power. And crime, uh, with the black codes and (laughs) very much to this day, is defined according to what gave offense to the ruling class. And in this case, the white supremacist ruling class. The objectionable, as you said, the objectionable crimes were vagrancy, which is just walking around and being around free. Uh, They could just take you for that like we're out here and we could be considered vagrants hanging out behind this building in this railroad track if we were a person of color in this time we could be arrested and sent to prison for just doing this and um yeah so (laughs) like you said vagrancy was as simple as not having an employer not having an employer or simply being accused of not having an employer exactly that's all it takes is an accusation and an accusation was all that was needed to raid uh, black people's homes and mm-hmm. bring them to prison. And so all it took is one white person to claim goods were stolen from Wiseman's groceries and John Henry was taken, taken, taken captured again. And John Henry's trial. A misdemeanor in 1864, writes Nelson, was a felony in 1865 and afterwards now that Virginia's white legislature had written the law to punish what they perceived as black crime. And by turning hundreds of misdemeanors into felonies, Virginia actually invented a crime wave, one that then made all this violence and persecution of blacks suddenly justified because they invented the, uh, crime in the first place, which was not really crime, just people living and their we, lives. And we continue to see echoes of that today with the broken windows policy of the 80s and 90s in New York City, and now the the sort of law and order stance of, to be honest, of both parties within the political establishment, cr- talking about how it wasn't that long ago that you know Democrats and Republicans referred to, to, to young blacks as super predators, and we're still seeing the ramifications of the creation of a crime wave where there isn't one to justify the subjugation of people of color, of, of workers of color in particular, who might be competing with, with white folks for, for jobs, a false competition. And, and we see that now. And, and, and so what happened to, to John Henry? How did, this, how did this trial actually go? Well, John Henry was from New Jersey, and he had come down for um, what he saw as opportunities for work, and he didn't really have um, necessarily anybody who could support him. He was a, a stranger in the land to an extent. And 
also the whole criminal system was set up against him from the very beginning. So he was sentenced to 10 years at the Virginia State Penitentiary, which at the time, as we've been discussing, is a death mm-hmm. sentence. 10 years on the railroad is not what it is today. <laughs> no. 10 years under those working conditions, not enough food, not clean water, living in harsh conditions for an employer who sees you still as just another implement, another tool, and your life doesn't matter, that's a death sentence. What happened with with John Henry himself? We know he was swept up by this system, a pretty big system, gets convicted with almost no evidence on his side to, to help him with his case, gets sentenced to 10 years ends up working on the railroad, swinging a hammer, shaking a spike. What happens after this? We see the in the song that he he dies of a maybe a heart attack of some kind. What happens after that? Where where does in terms of the historical record, where did where did he end up? Well, according to the prison record which we read out earlier, we really don't know. It said transferred, which can mean a variety of things. John Henry, we do know, did not die in the Virginia prison, according to Nelson's research, because his name is not listed Mm -hmm. on the surgeon's report. But according to Nelson, he did disappear from the prison records by 1874, with no mention of pardon, parole, or release. And this is quoting from Nelson, along with nearly 100 other prisoners, he is marked transferred in pencil. His corpse then was one of the counted but unnamed bodies shipped back to the penitentiary by rail. And so we talked uh, a little bit about how the CNO and other capitalists who leased convict laborers got to treat their workers like tools and they, you know, didn't care what happened to them. And Governor Wells wrote that the contracts did stipulate that damages of $100 for each prisoner not returned, but they got around that stipulation by just shipping the dead bodies back. So they were technically returned, but they weren't alive. But the, the historical record uh, borne out by uh, Reynolds, uh, what was his full name again? Scott, Scott, borne out by Scott Reynolds Nelson indicates that John Henry likely end up in, ended up in an unmarked grave back on a plantation. Back at the penitentiary, there was a big white building that was called the White House, and some songs refer to John Henry was buried at the White House, or he's at the White House, and that would have been a mass burial site for prisoners of the Virginia State Penitentiary. So it's a really tragic story, and work songs in general, and I'm not a musicologist, But work songs like John Henry served a real function for working people. And that was to coordinate the pace of work to a degree that it was a little bit easier on everybody to slow things down. And unfortunately, no amount of slowing down the pace of work could eliminate the the brutal treatment of these workers. But it may have marginally improved their lives. And that's 
that's important to remember too that people have been resisting this and have found ways to survive and have their history passed along and the injustice is heard that we need Mm -hmm. to pay attention to and correct stand here literally alongside these railroad tracks here in Barrie and we think about the legacy of John Henry it's not so much a worker's anthem for uh, a day's wage for a day's work it's contextualized we're left with the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and the exploitation of the working class where you work and work and work and work until you're done and then they bury you and now what we're left with is some cold steel rails laying here in Barrie or in Virginia or elsewhere in the country and the legacy of the people who are actually here who who died here who worked here who slaved away here that's been covered over and so recontextualizing history as ever here on on mass is is important and it's makes it feel much more spooky than i had thought yeah there are so many ghosts that haunt the spaces and places where we live that have yet to be heard and yet to be released and made at peace because we continue to we continue to live in a oppressive capitalist society that sends people to an early grave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The tagline of this show is stories of struggle and hope from the working class. And it's important when we examine history of a song like John Henry to not let the tragedy of our history overwhelm us and send us to a, a place of cynicism and nihilism. There's a lot of hope in the version of John Henry. There's hope to walk off the job. There's hope to get rid of the boss. And like we said earlier, the black workers in this country have been the vanguard of freedom struggles, not just against slavery, but for the entire working class. They have led probably the first massive general strike in this country by going to union lines. They've organized some of the most radical uh, unions and um, uh, nurtured some of the most radical leaders, such as A. Philip Randolph in the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Um, they, I mean, there's so many instances of resistance, and we could probably do a whole episode on radical black labor history. Or season. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> and it's interesting to think about, and I'm thinking a lot about the different versions of John Henry that we've heard, and one is a celebration, and you hear the sound of Grover Wells at Parchman Farm, who is probably known for years and years and years, many versions of John Henry, but that verse of boss men, do you pray? And that the implicit threat there, you know, tomorrow could be like your burying day. That's is for a worker in a penitentiary swinging a hammer. That's a, that's a rebuttal to history. That's what that sounds like to me. It's a reminder that like, look who's still holding the hammer. And in tandem with what you just said, and to honor one of the most 
influential um, black labor leaders in the United States, A. Philip Randolph once said, justice is never given. It is exacted and the struggle must be continuous for freedom is never a final fact, but a continuing evolving process to higher and higher levels of human, social, economic, political, and religious relationship.